Salutations, listeners. You're listening to the Dr. Jazz Podcast, and I'm your host, Nathan Holloway, your doctor for jazz. We hope to cure whatever ails you with the majesty and the power of jazz music. In this episode, we're going to be taking a look at arguably the most creative year in jazz history, 1959. And we're going to be taking a look at 10 albums that changed the history, the surface of jazz forever, and a selection from each of those 10 albums. So stay tuned, thank you for listening, and let's get to the music. Nineteen fifty nine was arguably the most creative year in all of jazz history. Charlie Parker had already passed away, and this year would also see the passings of Lester Young and Billie Holiday. Musically speaking, when we read jazz history texts, we see these labels among the many diverse styles of jazz: free jazz, modal jazz, third stream jazz, etc., etc., etc. And we tend to separate these different styles into these alternative universes. In fact, many of the contributions we now consider to be jazz classics actually all happened around the same time. And to fully understand the realm of jazz today, or all the different possibilities that could even occur tomorrow, We must understand that there wasn't a defining time in which Miles Davis woke up and said, I'm going to make the most influential jazz album of all time today. The same goes for Ornette Coleman or Dave Brubeck. In this spirit, we're going to explore the major jazz albums and contributions of 1959, the year that changed jazz. Thank you. 
Davis. The track is So What? Off the quintessential jazz album, Kind of Blue. It's on the Columbia label, and on that album is nothing, nothing but pure jazz history. On the trumpet, of course, Miles Davis. On the tenor saxophone, John Coltrane. On the alto saxophone, Julian Cannonball Adderley. On four-fifths of that album, there's only five tracks. Four of the five tracks, the pianist is Bill Evans. On one track, Freddie Freeloader, the pianist is Wynton Kelly. On bass, we have none other than Paul Chambers and... On the drums, Mr. Jimmy Cobb, who sadly is the only living member from that recording as of today in 2017. Kind of Blue is the quintessential jazz album. It is probably, arguably, the most influential jazz album. And it's considered modal jazz, but you have to understand where that came from. You see, Miles Davis started out in the bebop era playing with 
Charlie Parker and learning everything Dizzy Gillespie had already played before him. And after that, Miles Davis came out with an album called Birth of the Cool in 1949 that had a whole host of great players like Lee Konitz on the alto saxophone, Jerry Mulligan on the Barry sax. Uh, He also worked with Gil Evans on that project. John Lewis was a part of that. A lot of great jazz stars. But after the cool jazz, which is basically bebop, with a less harsh attack to the tone. After Cool Jazz, he he said, there's got to be some way of just stripping down all the noise of the chord changes every minute, every second, and every bar, and just getting to simple mode so you can stretch out and, and be even more creative just in a different way. And... Therefore, he would compose these tunes like what you just heard, So What, that had a bass line and a two-note melody. Be-dot. And in all of the entire song, there's only two chord changes, and they're half-step apart. And that's concert D minor, concert E flat minor. But besides that, everything that happened on that session was it was not uh, meant to be like this landmark album in fact there was no real rehearsing between all these great musicians that's one of the reasons there are just great musicians in fact Miles Davis just had little scraps of paper and he just give a little scrap of paper to Cannonball a little scrap of paper to Train a little scrap of paper to Bill Evans etc and he just said yeah, just, just, just play, just play. So that's what they did, and every track is just a classic solo. And these compositions, if you really want to call them that, these sketches have become standards. And there's this feeling that you know just kind of comes over every listener when they listen to Kind of Blue. It's just this this feeling of just being immersed in the sound in this world and in fact one person said that listening to Miles Davis play is almost like eavesdropping on a conversation but you feel like over time you're a part of that conversation the more miles you listen to it's also important to say about kind of blue that something that does not get mentioned a whole lot and that is that whole concept of modal jazz for this album was actually Bill Evans' idea. And he wrote the liner notes for this album, and he talks about how, you know, how simplicity, there's an art in simplicity. And he goes all the way back to, like, uh, Asian writing and Asian painting and things like that, and almost like a haiku sort of thing. And that concept was actually Bill Evans. And Miles took it, and the two of them crafted it together, and it is pure magic. Now, that being said, this same year, 1959, saw one of the members from that session explode in his own different way. And that would be John 
Coltrane.
John Coltrane, Giant Steps, from the album Giant Steps. Of course, John Coltrane on tenor saxophone. And then on this album are three of the greatest jazz pianists. Tommy Flanagan, Cedar Walton, and Wynton Kelly. On bass, again, Paul Chambers. And on drums, three of the best drummers in jazz history. Jimmy Cobb, who was also on Kind of Blue. Art Taylor, and Lex Humphreys. Now, the funny part about this album is, as you could hear, that was an entirely busier than So What <clears throat> with Miles Davis on Kind of Blue. Now, for Giant Steps with John Coltrane, Cedar Walton was the only one who was able to play over these intense chord changes. The other pianists tried, but a young pianist named Cedar Walton was actually the one who could play over these intensely challenging harmonic changes. And just to give you an indication of how challenging these harmonic chord changes were, this is still, even in 2017, a tune that is called To Cut People's Heads at jam sessions because it's still so very, very difficult. But John Coltrane is one of the saxophone giants in jazz who we call the scientists. There's a few scientists out there and they, they, they're like in a bebop vocabulary laboratory. And those are cats like Charlie Parker. Those are cats like John Coltrane who really raised the bar harmonically with the vocabulary of their solos. There's also tone artists like Stan Getz and, and such, but John Coltrane really raised the bar and it's, it's really hard to raise up to that bar because he was just relentless in his practicing, in his work ethic, in his writing, and that entire album, just like Kind of Blue, is full of classic tunes. Giant Steps, Cousin Mary, Countdown, Spiral, Saida's Song Flute, The Beautiful Naima, and Mr. PC. Definitely a staple for any jazz collection. Now, coming up next, we have the Dave Brubeck Quartet with an album on Columbia entitled Time Out. And here is their smash hit written by the saxophonist of the group, Paul Desmond, called Take Five. Thank you. 
That's the Dave Brubeck Quartet with Take 5, written by alto saxophonist Paul Desmond. And they used to say that Paul Desmond had this dry martini tone on the saxophone. Now, besides Take 5, of course, being one of the most popular hits in all of jazz, this is a rarity in its finest form. Take 5 is actually a tune that's written in 5-4 time. Most tunes are actually written in 4-4 time. Some tunes are written in in waltz time, which is 3-4 time, but Take 5 is actually a tune that's in the 5-4 time signature. Now that's 5 beats per measure. That's very strange especially in 1959. What's even more strange is if you can write it to become a popular hit the way Take 5 was. They didn't stop there, and Columbia thought that they were crazy until they realized what a hit they had on their hand with this entire album. Every song on the album, Time Out, is written in an odd time meter. There's nothing in 4-4. So, I want you to to realize that, that most jazz albums and most jazz tunes are written in 4-4, but Dave Brubeck, Paul Desmond, Joe Morello, and Eugene Wright all decided, no, we're going to create an album that's anything but 4-4, hence the title, Time Out. So, Blue Rondo a la Turk is in... You know, nine nine four time, but it's one two one two one two one two three, is you know how you count it, and it's just it's it's infectious. Take five is infectious. Kathy's waltz, pick up sticks, three to get ready. All these great tunes, just and it's one of those classic sounding app albums. You just you must have. The Dave Brubeck Quartet's Time Out in any basic jazz library. It's killer. It's just almost a perfect album. All of these are almost just the most perfect albums you can find in all of jazz. Now, some people call that cool jazz because it's got the light and airy tone to it, etc. But... It's groundbreaking is what it is. And it's another... stellar example of the fine jazz in 1959. Now, 
we've had two on Columbia, and John Coltrane's Giant Steps were it was recorded on the Atlantic label. And here's another landmark album that was recorded on the Atlantic album. And this is Ornette Coleman, Don Cherry, Charlie Hayden, and Billy Higgins with Lonely Woman. Thank you. 
Ornette Coleman, Don Cherry, Charlie Hayden, Billy Higgins, The Shape of Jazz to Come, on Atlantic, 1959. So yes, this is the quintessential free jazz album, if you want to put that parameter on it. But it was happening all at the same time that Dave Brubeck was going outside of 4-4 time, that Coltrane was busting through harmonic borders, and Miles Davis was pairing some of the greatest jazz stars of all time together in modality. All of this was happening at the same time. Just groundbreaking stuff, and that is such a hauntingly beautiful melody that Ornette wrote to Lonely Woman. I've played that tune myself probably easily a hundred times, and it's it just moves you, and you can never really recapture what Ornette does because he is one of those true, startling, original personalities in jazz. And, of course, that was Ornette Coleman on the alto saxophone, Don Cherry on the pocket trumpet, Charlie Hayden on the bass, and Billy Higgins on the drums. Now, notice that instrumentation. There's no piano. There's no guitar. So, that way they are free of chord changes. They play a melody, and then they go wherever their solo takes them, harmonically. And it's up to Charlie Hayden to follow that wherever it goes and make some kind of counterpoint. That's one of the strokes of genius on Charlie Hayden's part. But this was a true revolution. This kind of mentality was a true revolution that had not occurred in jazz since bebop from the swing era. And it was just full of fresh concepts on on how to imp- how to approach jazz and you know some people call lonely woman the anthem for free jazz uh, there's some people that vehemently disagree with that but what is not i mean you can't argue this fact at all is that ornette with that album and his entire career and his legacy have inspired many, many important artists from Albert Eiler to Archie Shepp, John Zorn, among many, many, many others, Pat Metheny. And this is completely different than what you just heard with Dave Brubeck, and it's completely different than what you heard with John Coltrane. But he would eventually inspire John Coltrane as well in the 60s. Either way you look at it, you must argue that this is one of the significant areas of jazz, just because it is so original and so different. And the reason I'm, I'm kind of talking about Ornette a great deal is because I, I, I'm a little biased about Ornette. You see, I am lucky enough and blessed enough that I was... I've had the opportunity to not only see Ornette Coleman perform, 
But I got to see him perform down in New Orleans, Louisiana with Ellis Marsalis and Alvin Batiste. And furthermore, I was lucky enough to see him after the show and speak to him and get his autograph and a picture with him. And I'm going to try to put that up on the website too. Just so you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not jiving you. And here is this revolutionary figure since the 50s with songs like Lonely Woman, like you just heard. And he's the most, he was one of the most soft-spoken, kind, beautiful people I've ever met in my entire life. Very humble, very accommodating, and just would take time to answer my questions and I told him how much I enjoyed his performance and thank you for all the music that he's given us to listen to and he was looking down the entire time and then he just said you know very very humbly oh thank you so very much Uh, do you play anything and I said yes sir I said I play the saxophone the alto saxophone and then he looked up and his eyes were just gleaming. And he said, Well, then let, let me reintroduce myself. My name is Ornette, and we're brothers. Let me tell you something, folks. You could have knocked me down with a feather at how that made me feel. So, I am a little biased to Ornette Coleman because he's one of the most beautiful people I've ever met. And it's very rare that a revolutionary figure is a beautiful person. But as Ornette said, beauty is a rare thing. Up next, another important, important, important staple from 1959 is the pianist from the Kind of Blue session. We're talking about the Bill Evans Trio. Thank you. 
Bill Evans Trio, Bill Evans on piano, Scott LaFaro on the bass, and Paul Motion on the drums, off the album Portrait in Jazz by the Bill Evans Trio. This is empathy at its finest. These are three guys who are truly sharing one mind. And to hear that great trio play is just phenomenal. Especially on something like a, a, a well-groomed standard like Autumn Leaves. I love that intro too. That's just, it's, it's so Bill. And it's just wonderful. At that time displacement, you know. It, uh. But the important part besides all the wonderful empathy that you just heard throughout that entire track is... You have Scott LaFaro not just providing the he's not just phoning it in. He's not just providing the roots to every chord. He he's kind of going off on his own. There's a little bit of that that free element even in Scott LaFaro. And Scott LaFaro would work with Ornette Coleman as well. Before his tragic end, sadly. Um but Paul Motion, the same one from the, all the ECM recordings that we've heard with like Chris Potter and all that. I mean, this is the exact same Paul Motion playing with Bill Evans on the drums. And on this album, it, there's just great, great, great tracks. Autumn Leaves, like you heard, Someday My Prince Will Come. Blue and Green, the same track from Kind of Blue that Bill Evans wrote and him and Miles played on on that album. Bill Evans truly, truly, truly is a major force of jazz piano. And many of his quote-unquote disciples were inspired by this trio and this album. Some of his disciples were McCoy Tyner, Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea, and Keith Jarrett. And in fact, this piano trio was a major influence on the Keith Jarrett trio with Keith Jarrett and Gary Peacock and Jack DeJanette. It's also a huge influence on the Brad Meldow trio. And Brad Meldow will quickly say that he is more inspired by Keith Jarrett than Bill Evans. He doesn't like to be compared to Bill Evans, although he has nothing but respect for Bill Evans. But one can easily hear musically the lineage from Meldow and his trio back to Keith Jarrett and his trio, which harkens back to Bill Evans and his trio. Now, all that said, let's keep this in mind. This is still talking about 1959. And taking that piano trio to a different realm of thought, a different realm of collective improvisation. And this is all at the same time that groups are changing and escaping from 4-4 mixed, you know, 4-4 meter in time into multi-mixed meters like 5-4 and things like that. That Ornette Coleman is exploring the boundaries of what is free and what is not free jazz. That Coltrane is busting through all those harmonies with giant steps. That Miles Davis is collaborating with Coltrane and Bill Evans on albums like Kind of Blue. 
So this is just one more step in proving that 1959 was arguably the most creative year in jazz because so many things were happening and so many things were groundbreaking and beautiful. Bill Evans. Bill Evans. There's not a bad Bill Evans album out there. Bill Evans. Up next, we're going to talk about the great bassist and the quintessential composer, Charles Mingus. Here's Goodbye, Pork Pie Hat. Thank you. 
what a beautiful, beautiful, haunting melody. That's Charles Mingus with Goodbye Pork Pie Hat, which was dedicated to Lester Young, who had recently departed as Mingus was writing and recording this album for Columbia. And this album, Mingus Ah Um, is one of the best jazz recordings of all time, and it features many of Mingus's greatest works. And there's a lot. But this one has Better Get It In Your Soul, a very gospel-rousing kind of tune, this hauntingly beautiful Goodbye Pork by Hat for Lester Young, and I just love those double tongues in the saxophones where he's just feather-tonguing those notes. It just sounds like a, a string player with his bow just going back and forth, but that's a saxophone, and that's just, it's pure beauty is what it is. There's also uh, a tune dedicated to Jelly Roll Morton called Jelly Roll, and there is the tune Fables of Phobos. And if you listen to the political episode of the Dr. Jazz podcast, you know all about that. But this was a tune written for the racist governor of the state of Arkansas. And it was Charles Mingus's cry for justice and to remove segregation. And it's... Charles Mingus is one of those champions of social justice, and he was very loud about that in his career and his lifetime. So if you're into that, uh, definitely check out the music of Charles Mingus. But Mingus Um, by and large, is one of the greatest jazz recordings overall in the entire history of the idiom. And it's just, it's full of blues, and it's full of soul, and it's full of a good time, and it's full of haunting melodies, and it, it for Mingus, there's very few things that, that, that stand up to Mingus I Um, but this is by far, I think, one of the top five Mingus albums of all time. And this is definitely in the top ten albums of all of jazz in all time as well. So I would easily say that anybody who wants to start a very basic jazz collection, if you only were to choose one Charles Mingus album, I'd be hard-pressed to say that you would probably need to pick up Charles Mingus's Mingus Ah Um on Columbia. Up next, the great Duke Ellington. We haven't forgotten about him. And what he was doing in 1959, he was making soundtracks like the soundtrack for the movie by Otto Preminger called Anatomy of a Murder.
Duke Ellington, Anatomy of a Murder. And that's the title track, too, Anatomy of a Murder. Oh, that is a wonderful film. And Duke Ellington actually makes a cameo appearance even in the film. But, God, the music all throughout is just sensational. That's the kind of song you just want to be in a convertible car with about a 60, 65-degree afternoon or evening you just want the wind blowing through your hair, just cruising and listen to something like that. That kind of bump to it, that kind of swagger, that bravura. That's the soundtrack to that feeling. And it's just wonderful. But Duke Ellington was working at this time in 1959 with Billy Strayhorn. And the Ellington-Strayhorn collaboration combination is easily one of the most fruitful of all time in all of jazz history. But the fact that Ellington and Strayhorn were writing original compositions being used in major motion pictures at that time, 1959, that is a wonderful development for jazz because it has allowed jazz composers from then on, 1959 till today, 2017, to write original music and have it cast in films. But the thing about Duke Ellington's Anatomy of a Murder with Billy Strayhorn is that it has lasted the test of time. It is truly a wonderful statement in jazz and film music. So we have jazz not only in film, the way Ellington and Strayhorn were doing, but all these other things that we've heard. Mingus, Brubeck, Ornette Coleman, Coltrane, Miles Davis, Bill Evans. Beautiful stuff. That's why we're still holding steady. 1959, one of the most classic years in jazz. Groundbreaking. Well, next we turn our attention to the great composer and pianist Horace Silver, who was a member at one time of the Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. But in 1959, he had his own group and was recording his own albums. And one of the finest albums he recorded for Blue Note Records was Blowing the Blues Away. And it had many great songs on that album, like this one, Sister Sadie. Thank you. 
Silver and his quintet on Blue Note Records, Blowing the Blues Away, recorded on August 29th and August 30th, 1959. Mm, mm, mm. Got great tracks on here, Blowing the Blues Away, The St. Vitus Dance, Break City, Peace, Baghdad Blues, Melancholy Mood, How Did It Happen, and What We Just Heard, Sister Sadie. On the trumpet, none other than Blue Mitchell, the giant on jazz trumpet, Blue Mitchell. Tenor saxophone, Junior Cook. On the bass, Mr. Eugene Taylor. On the drums, Louis Hayes. 
and on the piano, the composer himself, Mr. Horace Silver. Gotta love that because it's just soulful. It's just energetic. It's got great solos. It's just down home. I mean, heavy hitters on, on the horns like Blue Mitchell and Junior Cook. I mean, just it's 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 hard bop. You know, is what they call it, but it's just it's feel good music, you know, and that's one of the the areas that that usually gets kind of slighted, you know, you know, when we're talking about 1959, because that year is 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 a quantum year, and we always talk about train and miles and you know and, and Ornette, and sometimes you know they'll talk about Brubeck, and sometimes they'll talk about you know Bill Evans, but they always usually leave out. Horace Silver and that whole hard bop movement. That wasn't just the 60s, you know. That Blue Note was doing all that down-home, soulful, bluesy, just, you know, rollicking good jazz, you know. That was right here, 1959. At the same time, Ornette was blowing free. The same time, Brubeck was going and playing in 5-4. The same time that Coltrane was busting through giant steps. This was happening. These were not, were not in like little blocks, you know. This wasn't like, well, in 1959, this happened. But in 1960, this happened. In 61, Horace Silver played hard bop. No. It's not that black and white. Stop trying to put it in a box. It's possible that all this was happening at the same time. And it was. That's what's great about it. Is we can look back now. And be smarter for it. And realize that, hey, it's okay for all these things to happen at the same time. You know, when I, whenever I, I talk about 1959, it, it always comes back around to the point. How are we so homogenized? In, in, like, even in pop music today, everything's just the same. Why don't we have stuff that's, you know, like completely different now i know that there's some differences but i mean we're talking about really landmark differences here we're talking about miles davis kind of blue john coltrane giant steps and i know that doesn't happen often but it's just it's okay to everybody to do their own thing you know i i think that the record execs need to really learn a lesson from 1959 if an artist has a vision then damn it, let them do whatever they want to do. If it's a true vision, it could be the next kind of blue. It could be the next Horace Silver blowing the blues away. It could be the next Giant Steps. It could be the next Shape of Jazz to come. It could be the next Time Out. Because Columbia didn't even want Brubeck to put that out. But he did. And we're that much better for it. Moving on. Horace Silver. Great stuff. Down home stuff. Up next, the vocalists. Yes, Miss Ella Fitzgerald sings the Gershwin Songbook with the orchestration by Nelson Riddle. Here to stay 
for a Ella Fitzgerald sings the Gershwin Songbook with Nelson Riddle and his arrangements. And he's actually conducting that session too. You know, Ella is, God, she is like the lady time, you know, just because she's got such great timing in her vocals. And man, Nelson Riddle really made that lush for her, you know, and this is something that's very important too, because this is as good as jazz vocals get. But this started a whole trend on the Verve label for Miss Ella Fitzgerald, and 
her singing the Gershwin songbook was so popular and so well done and so much care and craft was put into that session that it eventually led to Ella sings the Cole Porter songbook. Ella, Ella sings the Irving Berlin songbook, the Johnny Mercer songbook, the Duke Ellington songbook, the Rogers and Hart songbook. All these great composers of what we call the Great American Songbook. Composers like Gershwin, composers like Cole Porter, composers like Rogers and Hart, and Johnny Mercer, and Duke Ellington, Irving Berlin. She would sing these, you know, these great compositions of the Great American Songbook, and she'd have these well-crafted arrangements around her. And this is one of the things that helped start a wave for jazz vocalists because Sarah Vaughn would sing albums dedicated to Joe Beam and to Gershwin and Mel Torme would do the same. And this is truly something that, that kind of, you know, got some traction in 1959. And it was super important to, I think, to, to mention Ella and, and all the songbook series, like Gershwin and Cole Porter, and etc. Because at, this is still happening at the same time. You know, looking back on the Great American Songbook and just how many great standards are within the Great American Songbook and how many great composers are within the Great American Songbook. And this is happening, like I said, you keep this in perspective. I know I sound like a broken record, but keep in perspective that Ella is making a hit with Gershwin at the same time that Ornette is making a splash and a hit with Lonely Woman and Free Jazz. It's possible for both to exist. And it's wonderful because we get this wonderful diverse plate to choose from even in the same year. So to close the program out, I wanted to bookend it with another Miles Davis piece. We began with Miles, and we're going to end with Miles. Now, it wasn't released until 1960, but it was being recorded in 1959, so that's another reason it's put last on this 10-item list. This is Miles Davis in the same year as Kind of Blue. He recorded, well, the I should back up. The story goes that his wife at the time, Frances, took him to go hear Spanish guitar music. And he didn't really want to go. He's just like, I don't want to go to that. I don't want to go. I don't want to go out. You know. And she said, come on, Miles. Come on. I think you might like it. Because she was a dancer. And a very good dancer at that. Um, but he decided to go along just to make her happy. And... What happened was he figured out that he really, really, really loved Spanish guitar music. It's a good thing he went. So this led to him buying many, many, many Spanish guitar albums. And he started to have this idea of a big scheme project where what if he were to play some of those Spanish guitar pieces but with a melody on the trumpet 
And what would that be like? And then how, how can we how can we really set this up? How can we give this a lot of care and cushion to this session? Well, he decided to call on his old pal, Gil Evans. The same one who had helped him out with Birth of the Cool, Miles Ahead, and Porgy and Bess. And so, in 1959, Miles got together with Gil Evans and created one of the true masterpieces in the entire jazz canon. Sketches of Spain.
hauntingly beautiful. I know I've said that like two or three times, but my God, that is just so gorgeous. Miles Davis, Gil Evans, Sketches of Spain. That is Rodrigo's The Concerto de Aranjuez, the Spanish guitar piece. You know, there's so many pieces that are so great on that album. I, I had a hard time choosing it because I really love Will of the Wisp and that, that, that mute that Miles uses in it and everything. But I decided to go with the first thing that drew me in to Sketches of Spain, which was the Concerto de Aranjuez. And that is the same melody that has been used many, many, many times as intros to other songs. Like, for instance, Chick Corea used that melody in the beginning of his piece, Spain, um, as a tribute to Miles and a tribute to Rodrigo. But this, even though it came out in 1960... Sketches of Spain was recorded in 1959, and it is so integral to the history of jazz because it's combining this kind of classical music with imp- jazz and improvisation. This is kind of in what they would call that third stream category, you know, because the Concerto de Aranjuez is a beautiful tune, even by itself, for guitar. There's no denying that. But this is truly just a work of beauty. A work of beauty whenever it's in Miles' trumpet and Gil Evans' arrangements. And it's, uh, as, as I said before in, in, in my, my article, 1959, The Most Creative Year in Jazz, this is another gargantuan contribution to the evolution and the diversity in jazz. Well, thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast. And in this episode, we have covered some of the most groundbreaking jazz albums of all time, but centralized it to arguably the most creative year in jazz, 1959. Thanks for listening. And remember, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Y'all be good now, and in jazz we trust.